Well, it's lovely to be with you tonight in, in Crescent Church and to take you a little bit further forward in the journey that you're taking through 1 Samuel. Tonight, I've been given a, quite a chunk, actually. We're going to finish off chapter 10, and then we're going to look into chapter 11 and 12 as well. So as we start off tonight, let me just remind you of where we are and indeed what is happening as well. We're coming to this transition phase, really, in 1 Samuel. Time, when the time of the judges is coming to an end, and we're coming into the phase of the kings. The history of God's people up to now has been one of them limping from crisis to crisis. And each crisis they would come to, God would raise up a judge, a judge who would come to deliver them. But now for their own carnal reasons, okay, their own fleshly reasons, they're desiring to have a king. And what we see here is that they're looking around them. They're seeing the nations that are all around them. They're seeing how they work. And they're identifying there in each of those nations the fact that they have a monarch. The fact that there's a king that is there clothed and robed in all the royalty that goes with that. And they liked what they saw. There was something appealing from this. And so they wanted this image of a king for themselves as well. And so that's where we're breaking into in verse 17. So let's read together the Word of God. We're going to read just the end of chapter 10. So reading from verse 17. It says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? 
and they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Do you know, as I was reading this passage and considering this little passage along with the following two chapters, there was a certain resonance with the day in which we live. Do you know, as I was reading it and I was thinking, I was reading and I was thinking there was a lot of anxiety with the people in these days. There's a lot of depression, there was a lot of despair, there was a lot of despondency that we can see here in this passage. And what we're seeing here as we break in at verse number 17 of 1 Samuel 10, we see here Samuel and he has summoned the people together. These people are gathered together at Mizpah. Now, this place is significant. It's significant because this was the place where back in chapter 7, here you had Israel and they were victorious over the Philistines. It was a time when God moved in a significant way. God, by the power of his voice, was heard, and there was salvation then for his people. And it's to that place, a place where God had worked in a significant way, that's the very place here that Samuel now has gathered God's people together. And as he gathers them together at this place where God had won a victory, he brings them together and he wants to remind them. Remind them of that wonderful truth that only God can save. That's the message for the people at that time. Only God can save. And we see here at the start of this passage how that Samuel begins to bring the word from God. And you'll see here in verse, from verse 17 on down, these are the words that are spoken. I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptian, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. What a wonderful thing to be reminded of, that God had saved him, that God had worked in his might, God had worked in his power, and he had rescued these individuals. He had rescued them from the hands of those who had been the avengers. And God has delivered these people right throughout their history. And this is what's going to be brought to their attention now. God had been so good and so kind to them when they were caught in their slavery in Egypt. God had come in, he worked, and he delivered them from their bondage. And being delivered by God, surely that was something they wouldn't, you would have thought, would not have forgotten about. And yet here they are. And at this point in time, Samuel's going to now remind them, look, this is the very God that you are now rejecting. The God that you're rejecting. You're rejecting his kingship over you. This is what's going on here within the nation. They're rejecting the God who had delivered them. Samuel knew, knew this was such a, a foolish thing. He knew this wasn't going to end well for them. He, know, he knew that they'd been looking around themselves. They desired something for themselves here that was it was going to make them like the nations around them. But what here we see in this passage is now this time where there's going to be a man identified among the people. And God is going to, through these lots that are being drawn, he's going to identify the man who is going to be the king of Israel. And it's interesting to see how they, they narrow it down. You get it down to the tribe. You get it down to the clan. And then it comes to that very individual soul being identified. And the search 
goes out for Saul. Where is he? Where on earth has he got to? Because they know who it ought to be, but as they look around, they can't see him. And so the word from God comes that he is hidden among the baggage. Here is the man who's going to lead Israel. He's crouched down. He's hidden away. He's out of sight. He's not someone who's pushing himself forward. He's not wanting to take up and assume that role himself. He has been identified by God. But God knew all about Saul. God knew all about his weakness. God knew what would happen, but still this was the man for this time. This was the man who was going to be the king over all of Israel. Now, now it wasn't that God was, if you like, choosing a lame duck. God wasn't saying, oh, you want a king? I'll give you this sort of king, and that'll show you. That, that wasn't the approach of God here at all. God identified this man. Obviously, God knew in his sovereign, his, his sovereign knowledge, he knew how this was all going to end up. But it wasn't that God was particularly picking out a king that wasn't really going to work for the people. But Saul, um, Saul, as he steps forward here, we see him being chosen by God. We see those eyes of the people being fo focused upon him. And Samuel now saying, do you see him, the very one the Lord has chosen? And it's very clear he does stand out among the rest of the people. You'll see from the description that we're given about him, in fact, if you like, he's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's, he stands out among those that he was standing among. So if you'd have been looking for the external, he probably ticked a lot of the boxes. But we see here, as these people are fixing their eyes upon the one who was chosen, they acknowledge and they say, long live the king. They realize this is the one that God has picked. This is the one that God has chosen for this time. And Samuel then begins to explain what it was going to be like to have a king. And we see there this next little part where he explains the rights and the duties of a king. This is something different for the people, so they're going to be need to, this is going to be needed to be explained to them. And we see after this happens, after this great explanation of what it would be to be a king, we see then this journey back for, for Saul. And he's come back to this place called Gabeah, but he's not going alone. I want you to notice as he is traveling back towards his own place where he's going to stay, there are others who have journeyed with him. And those that are journeyed with him, they're interesting characters. They're characters whose hearts had been touched by God. God had touched the hearts of these men. And they were going back as a mighty man, men who had power, men who had strength, men whose desire was to be with the one who God had chosen. But that, those men didn't speak for all of Israel because we actually read there were then other worthless fellows. So Israel very evidently was not united at this time. There were these other smaller group of people, these worthless fellows, as, as they're called here in the passage and they, as they looked upon Saul being chosen, they weren't really altogether enamored by the choice that had been made. And in fact, we see how that they, they ask, can this man save us? They're looking at Saul and that there's, what they're seeing doesn't really appeal to them. In fact, they despise him as actually as they look upon him. And actually we see they, they, we're told here that they don't acknowledge his reign by bringing any, any type of present to him. What a question 
as you finish off that chapter, can this man save us? And that then takes us over into chapter 11. And chapter 11 then is going to put that question to the test. Can this man save us? And as you go over into chapter 11, you now meet a new character. His name is Nahash the Ammonite. So Nahash the Ammonite, we read a little bit about what he was like. His name is interesting. His name meant serpent. I suppose when we think of a serpent, we think back, don't we, to the very beginning. We're thinking back to Genesis. We're thinking back to the serpent that was subtle. We're thinking of that one who was sly in his way of moving and acting. We saw the one who, we think of the one who brought that fall upon man by deceiving. So that's all those pictures come together as we think of a serpent. And that's the name of this man. Nahash the Ammonite. The serpent really is the, is the picture I want you to take away from that. And as he is here introduced to us at the start of chapter 11, he's not alone. In fact, his people, the Ammonites, are with him. And they are encamped around an area, a surround, surrounding this area, where there are children of Israel gathered together and living. And as he's there and he's gathered with his, his men around Jabesh Gilead, we see him here in siege. Okay, so he's created a siege around the city. Nothing's going in, nothing's going out. These people are being held at ransom. And these men of Jabesh Gilead, they think, what are they going to do? They're caught in a very difficult situation. How are they going to deal with this? Well, interestingly, what we see them doing is they try to make a treaty with Nahash. They try to get a treaty whereby they will serve him. They will live, uh, they will be happy to surrender their rights to him if he will only spare their lives. But we see here, Nahash is going to drive a hard bargain. His hard bargain he's going to drive with these people is that he was going to be happy to enter into that treaty. But it would be under the understanding that he was going to gouge out the right eye of every individual who was in that city. What was he doing here? Well, a couple of things we can see what he's doing behind it, what's behind this really is. He's first of all, he, he's wanting to humiliate these people. He's wanting to humiliate them. He's wanting them to be left with a mark of something that is missing, and that is what he's doing. He's wanting to remove that eyesight. So he mean, it means if, he goes out, if these guys go out to battle and they go to dry, try and use a bow and an arrow, it's not really going to work. It's going to be a difficult thing for them. And so they agree to think this over. They say they're going to give them seven days to consider this. And the message goes out then all across Israel. And this message as it goes out across all of Israel, and as people get to hear what is happening, we see them being brought to tears. As they hear of the plight of their own people being caught in this time, where actually they're going to potentially be so humiliated by their enemies. They think this is not right. And their tears are flowing from, from their eyes as they consider what it is that is about to happen to these people. And as the cry goes up, as that cry is heard across the land, Saul here, we find him in verse 5, and he's out in the field behind the oxen. And he's hearing the cries of the people. And he inquires, what is this about? Why the cries? Why are these people so upset? 
And then the message is brought to him. The plight of the people was explained to him. And Saul was moved with an anger. And we see what happens here. We see how that he decides to make this very graphic image that is sent throughout all the land, these pieces of oxen that are sent along with a message. And you can picture that little piece of oxen coming to that little part of the country with the message behind it. The message about how that God's people are in great danger. And of course, the warning as well for them that if they don't come to the relief of these people, what is going to happen to them? And we see a great mobilization then right across the land. The people rise up. The people gather together. And it's lovely to see they gather together as one. There's a unity there in what is about to happen. And as they come together, they're on the march. And they're going to rescue those people of Jabesh Gilead. The message is brought back to those people, brought back to those despairing people. They hear that there are those of their fellow men who have risen up and that are coming to their rescue. And so they go out again, and they go out for the message to be sent to Nahash. They explain that tomorrow was going to be the day when they would be happy to enter into that treaty. Of course, they don't mention the fact that there's a great band of men that are on their way to bring about relief. You see, the promise that had been given to them was that by lunchtime that next day, that there would be deliverance, that there would be freedom. And sure enough, Saul led those men. He led them forward, and he brought them forward to this place. And as they were split into three large groups, they would go and they would surround those Ammonites. And what we read off is that the battle started in the very early hours of the morning and continued right through to midday. And it's interesting to see how, how victorious they were. Actually, what we read here is that there weren't another two of those Ammonites found together. That's how big a damage was done to the army. They were so depleted in numbers, you didn't see two of them walking off together. There were only single individuals who had ran and fled from the battle. So there was great victory here that was brought because it was the Lord had worked salvation for his people. As they were celebrating this wonderful victory, we see here our Samuel, first of all, wanting to know where the worthless men were, those men who had spoken out against Saul previously. He was wanting to put those men to death. But Saul wasn't happy for that to happen. And we see here in, in verse number 12, as, as he was asking for that, where were these men? Identify them. Let's deal with them. Let's get rid of them. Samuel, or Samuel was wanting that. Saul was not prepared to let that happen. He realized that this was a significant day. He wanted the people to take away that day, the key message. And that was that it was God that had saved his people. It was God that had come in in power and had come in and delivered his people. And so Samuel gathers together the people again. They're going to go back to that place called Gilgal, that place of sacrifice, that place of the peace offering. And that is a place for them where they're going to go back with thankfulness. The place they're going to go back with, I suppose, thankful to the gracious God who has saved them. They're going back with gratefulness in their hearts to come and to rejoice in what God has done for them. So if we were to pause at this point in the story, 
How do we summarize what we've just been going through and reading from Scripture? Well, we would, first of all, we would see that we had a people who were in great danger. You would see that people who were in great danger, you would think of how that they were threatened in slavery, would think of how that there, were, there was a danger of them being humiliated, would think of that hanging over their head, would think of the concern of those people, would think of the despair of those people, would think of them perhaps even being despondent as well. And you'd be asking, well, was there hope for those people? And of course, the answer from this passage was, yes, there was hope. Because God came in and God identified his man. God identified this man who was going to lead his people. He was empowered by the Spirit of God, and he led the attack on the enemy. And we see what we've looked together here is that there was victory that was gained. That power that would have been there to enslave the people, it was dealt with. And we see here that we have a God then who is glorified by those words of Saul at the end of that passage. Here we have a rejoicing Israel, rejoicing in the freedom that had been brought about by God. Aren't those themes familiar to us this evening, aren't they? Those themes of a people who had a huge problem. Those themes of a people who were ensnared, who were enslaved. A people who were in despair. Those are themes that are, are, are familiar to us. And of course we thought of God identifying a man, God choosing a man. Of course, we can think of that for ourselves this evening, God thinking of a man for us, the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son. And we think of him coming and stepping into to time. We think of him coming in to deal with sin. We think of him dealing with what it was that was holding us in bondage, that was preventing us from having a life that was lived out to be free and Jesus Christ, the Savior, came. And he died our death that we deserved. And he brings us into freedom. And through that mighty deliverance that we have experienced, God has been glorified. And we, each of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, we experience freedom. We experience that idea of being rescued. We walk in the joy of our salvation. And that brings us to chapter 12. And as we come to chapter 12, we see here that Samuel now is again addressing the nation. He wants to be very clear at the start of this chapter that this idea of a king is not his idea. He restates that just in case they hadn't heard him the other times that he'd mentioned it. And we see then in these early verses in chapter 12, him getting into a phase of, I suppose, what you could call self-examination. But it was open self-examination. He was doing it in front of the people. Self-examination, is a, it's, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to think at times about how really our life is before God. I suppose when we do that, there's a, perhaps a, we might be fooled into thinking of, well, what do other people think of me? Or what do I think of myself? Those things don't matter. What really matters is what God thinks of us. And we see here Samuel being very clear as well in this first part of the passage. It was what God thought was what he was worried about. He knew that God was the witness to this whole survey of his life of being a, a, a servant of these people, of being the leader of these people. And as he would go through those different parts of his leadership, 
He was aware about the different steps he had had to take before the people. He knew where it had gone wrong, but he knew he had done right before God. And it's lovely, I think it's lovely just for him to see him very much aware that it's God's witness is what's before him. He doesn't care about the other people. He doesn't care about what others say. It's what God thinks is really what matters in the sight of Samuel. Interesting, the, the, difference, the different difficult decisions he'd had to make as he led the people. Think of his own sons, how that he wasn't prepared to let them step up into leadership. And actually, he reminds the people of that. That was a difficult thing for him to do. And he reminds them, look, actually, my, my sons are down among you. They're down among you as the people. It's a reminder that he made right decisions before God. And as we come then to the next little part of this chapter, we have him summarizing the history of the people of God. And we're going to see here a theme that's going to develop in these next number of verses, really from verse number six on down. And we're going to see here that Samuel is going to impress upon the people this theme of the righteous deeds of the Lord. That's what he wants to bring before them. He wants to remind them that it was, it was God that brought them out of Egypt. It was God that set them free. See, it was that righteous deed that brought them out of that bondage and set them into that place of deliverance. That was the righteous deeds of the Lord. But then as you read on down and you see how that actually there was a time when these people were delivered into the hands, they were delivered now into the hands of another army. And even that deliverance over into the hands of this, what appeared to be an enemy, used by God to bring discipline on these people, we see that too as being a righteous deed of the Lord. God in doing this was wanting to bring about a change of harden the people. He was wanting to change their mind. He was wanting to bring them to that place of repentance. He was wanting them to turn back again to him. So God delivering them, that was a righteous deed of the Lord. God actually putting them into this form of bondage here, that was a righteous deed of the Lord. And then we see here in verse number 11 that it's brought right up to date. Those deliverers, he reminds them that God had brought up deliverers that would then bring them out of that bondage again. And that, of course, is the whole pattern of what happens in this period of the judges. Deliverers rising up when there was a crisis to deliver the people. And he reminds them that when that happened, that too was a righteous deed of the Lord. The Lord was working in the right way for them at that time as well. The judges, we know, are, are a sad period of time. We see the cycles going. The people feel they go up, there are the high points, there are then the low points, and on it goes. And I don't know about you, but there's so much from the judges I find that can resonate with me at times, with my life. There are those high times, those times that are close where I walk in, in deep communion with God, where there's that reality of living with God each day and walking with God in step with Him. And then there are those other times where God perhaps has to come and gently through his word correct those attitudes, those, those things in our life that are out of alignment with what he would want for us. And that's, that's what we see here for his people back in the judges, God coming and working in their life, convicting them and bringing about a change in his people. Do you know, 
God does that because He loves us. He disciplines us. He brings these things that are wrong before us. He puts the finger on the sore points in our life, the little bits perhaps in the corners that we, we, we like to hide away from people. God comes and He puts His finger on those things, and He asks us to deal with them. He doesn't act in a way of punishing us. As we think of the, the, as God punishing, we think of the cross. That's when our sin was dealt with. Our sin was dealt with on the cross at Calvary. It was that that brought us salvation. It was that that brought us forgiveness. But when we think of what it is that God now is doing in our lives as believers, He wants us to deal with the areas of our lives that are out of alignment. He wants us to be prepared to confess that before him and come to that point where there's forgiveness and we, where we then walk differently as a result of that. And that really, for me, is the reminder that comes from this little part of the passage. As we think of those judges, we think of those times of, of failure, we think of those high points again. I want to just encourage you tonight to, to have that self-examination time to have that time before God where he would point out the areas by his spirit in your life, that those areas may be brought into subjection to his will, that you could go forward again with God to the depths of the relationship that he desires to have with you. Well, let's come back into verse number 12 again. As we come into verse number 12 here, we see that Samuel doesn't want them to miss this key important truth that he has here for them. He's going to remind them about what has just happened with Nahash. So we have another reference to this man, Nahash the Ammonite again. And he wants to remind them that it was God that delivered them from that man as well. So he's gone through the whole history and he's brought them now back to this very recent thing that they have experienced. And he reminds them that it was God that had done this great work for them. And in the back of that then, he confronts them with the fact again that this was the very one. The one who had delivered them was the one who they did, rejected and didn't want as their king. And so the eyes now of the people are turned towards Saul. Because Samuel is reminding them that they got what they asked for. They wanted a king, and God now has given them that king. He gave them the king that they had asked for. And as Saul, to the human eye, to the people who were looking on, it looked good from the outside. But the reality of what you're going to see in the chapters ahead as you study through them is you're going to see that the outside really wasn't the issue. It was the heart. And that's, isn't that so true? That's, it's a human heart that is the issue. We look on the outside and we can, we can get, perhaps we get a pleasant picture and we think that's, that's good, but it's not what God sees. And so this is what they're reminded of as they look towards this man called Saul. They see that here they are, they've made this decision, they wanted a man like this to rule over them. And what they're going to see in doing that is that they've actually rejected the God of heaven. They've acted in a wrong way. They've rejected the God of heaven as being their king. This was, if you like, a failure for the people. But you know what God is going to teach them through Samuel here is that failure is not final. Because that's what you're going to take away from this next little section. Failure is not final. 
And I want you to underline, underline this little passage this evening. Underline these verses 13 to 15. Because what you're going to see here, even though they made these decisions that were wrong to have a king, we're going to see here how that Samuel is encouraging them, if you like, to draw a line in the sand. He's encouraging them to move forward. He's encouraging them to move out and to go forward in a way that is different. And to do that, what he's going to ask them to do is to put God first, to make God their priority, to make serving God the priority, to be, make hearing his voice the priority, to make obeying his voice the priority. That's what they're being called out now to do, to make that resolution that they're no longer going to rebel, but that they're going to follow fully after God. Because what Samuel is going to tell them is that if you do that, if you do that, all will be well. Sadly, we know what's going to happen. We know how this is all going to end up. But they have, of course, this choice before them, obey or disobey. But in reality, we know there's no choice, really. Sure, there's not. Really, what he is encouraging them here to do is to obey, to hear, to obey, and to follow God. But as that impassionate plea is being made to these people, as Samuel is, is making this plea, it's, it must be clear to him that the message doesn't appear to be getting through to the people. And so we have him here appealing to God to bring about this great work before them. A significant event that was going to get their attention, an event that would draw them back to think about the judgment of God and to think of how that God could come in and move in the life of this nation before them. You see, at the time of year that they're at, it's harvest time. So the wheat would have been high in the fields. They'd have been ready to go out, to glean it, to bring it in so that the grain could be put into storage for the season ahead. Now, I'm no farmer. I'm East Belfast, born and bred, so I don't really know very much about the farms, don't very know very much about the fields. I've driven past plenty of fields in the summertime and I've watched wheat high, high in the ground. But I, I would guess that if you've got a heavy storm, you have a lot of water comes down in a deluge, you can guess that those ears of wheat or corn in the fields, they're going to bend over, aren't they? They're going to fall down to the ground. The harvest is going to be ruined. And this is the picture now that is going to be made before these people. Samuel is appealing to God to send the rain, to send the storm, the thunder, that they're going to know it's going to be so out of place. This is harvest. It's not a time when it rains. And yet there's going to be this massive deluge that is going to speak to these people, that is going to get them to sit up and to listen and to take on board the message that God is bringing through Samuel. And that's exactly what happens. And as this mighty act happens before them, it does, it, it evokes a response in the people's hearts. It brings them to a point where, if you like, there is repentance. It says here that all the people, they feared God greatly, and, and Samuel too. But it's interesting, there's, as you get to verse number 19, you will see here a response from some of the people. And I want you to notice the words very carefully. It says here, pray to the Lord your God. Pray to the Lord your God. This is them speaking to Samuel. Now, was this not, was God not their God too? You see, this would perhaps put the question over were there perhaps some among the people of Israel who weren't committed to God? 
You see, there's a message here then for these people that Samuel brings to them. The message is that he wants them to focus on God, not the worthless, empty things that are around them. He wants them to forget what's behind them. He wants them to press forward with God. He wants the days that are ahead to be different than the days that were behind them. And in verse verse 22, we see this lovely reminder that is brought to the people of God's thoughts towards them. We see here this reminder to them of a God who loves them, a God who cares for them. And we see here them perhaps sitting back and reflecting upon what has gone in the past, maybe thinking, could God still be interested in working with these people? But we see here the wonderful truth that God was still prepared to work with these people. We know that God is long-suffering. Scriptures remind us he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any would perish. And we see him working here in a loving way towards his people. God wanted his people. God had a desire for them. He had a greater desire for them than they sadly had for him. As we look forward to Samuel and we see his care for the people, there's no doubt he cared for them. There's no doubt he shared that love that God had for them as well. In verse 23, we see how much of a care he had for them. We see his commitment to pray for the people. He actually says he's not going to sin by not praying. He realized that in that position that he had, he was responsible for these people. They burdened his heart as he thought of them. He cared for them deeply and he prayed for them. Not only did he pray for them, verse 23, you'll see, he sought would be seeking to guide them and direct them as well. Samuel encourages them to fear the Lord and to serve him from that position because of the wonderful works that he has done for them. I suppose it's the same when we come to serve God. We do it out of our knowledge of who he is. We do it out of our knowledge of what it is that he has done for us as well. When these people were to meet their next Nahash, when they were to meet that one who would come to seek to put them into bondage again, how would they respond the next time? Would they remember their God? Would they remember the great things that he had done for them? See, that's what the encouragement here for them to do is to remember who their God is. It's that that will bring perspective to the problem or the difficulty that's before them. And isn't that a takeaway for us this evening as well? When those difficulties, when the trials in life come, we remind ourselves of who our God is, of the mighty deeds of our Lord, and we remind ourselves that's the one who we put our faith in. That's the one who we're depending in. It's that that brings perspective to our problems. And as we finish off the end of chapter 12, we see the final warning given by Samuel to these people. He tells them again, he gives them this warning, look what it would be if they weren't to obey and weren't to follow after God. He says, but if you still do wickedly, he says, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. He's not holding back for them, from them. He wants them to know the, the seriousness of this. God will not let their rebellion go on ahead. God will be a God of action who will draw them back to himself again. And of course, you're going to see as you continue this study how this plays out in the chapters that are ahead. So as we come to a close this evening, 
What is it that we can take away? What can we remind ourselves from this passage of, of particularly chapter 12 as we've been just looking at? What can we take away from it? Well, first of all, failure is not final. As we go away from here this evening, let's resolve that when we hear from God that we're going to obey him. We're going to follow after him. We're going to pursue him. And of course, we're going to remember the wonderful deeds that our God has done. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this evening for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to dip into it this evening again in this passage and to see the wonderful truth of how you worked with your people, Israel. Oh, Father, there are so many resonating themes through this passage as we think of our own walk with you. We thank you for that reminder, Father, from this passage this evening that that failure in the past is not a barrier from you using individuals in the future. We thank you for that wonderful thought, Father, that you're happy to forgive. We're happy, you're happy to speak again to people. Father, what a joy it is to think of lives being changed in their direction that they have been traveling. And our prayer tonight is that each of us will consider that we will be involved in some self-examination before you, that you'd help us to identify the areas of our lives that perhaps are out of, out of kilt with you. We'd help us, Father, that you would help us by your Spirit to bring those areas into conformity to your will again. And Father, help us as we go forward to rejoice in who you are as our God, in the wonders of what you have done, and with that wonderful truth that you are a God who saves. Well, Father, part us with your blessing tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.